think I shared a while, I did, I shared like three weeks ago, just about these, I think it's very prophetic that these water towers are being done here within the city. And um, I think it's pretty interesting that both water towers got cleaned on the inside and out. And they've been polished and shined. And I think it's, it's the highest place of this whole entire city. And I'd shared that this came out of an encounter I had with the Lord um, where he showed me that there was, there was a cleansing that he was going to do. And I didn't understand what that means. And then three years later, this is actually happening. Um, and the whole purpose, and I was reading a book and I had this, this picture vision where I saw a foot coming out of heaven and like literally kicking the water tower over and flooding the city um, with his presence because he had cleaned the inside of the cup. Because that's what he wants to put on display in our lives is, is his character. He wants us to take on his divine nature, um, which doesn't come from things of the world or worldly wisdom. It comes from the spirit of God, which is the wisdom of God, which is the mind of Christ. Um, and I do believe for the past three years, the Lord's really been doing a work uh, here in this city. He's been a do, doing a work in our hearts here in this church. Um, but I know that the Lord's put some burdens on us to, to ask him for revival. And it's not only us, but there's other churches in this area, in particular, um, Great Commission Fellowship, who's also meeting at the same time. So as the, as the water towers are coming to a completion, I've just kind of watched them. And I've watched it over the three years as a reminder of what the Lord has said. Um, I'm just very hopeful. It's almost three years to the day that he gave me that vision. I'm not trying to hold the Lord accountable like three years, three days, you know, these types of things. But I found myself, um, I met with my mentor, who's Dr. Steve Siemens. He's a professor at the seminary, and we've, we're very close, and we've been talking and sharing. He's, he's very open to the prophetic, and, um, and just sharing our hearts. And this was shared at the GCF um, congregation a couple Saturday, or, yeah, Saturdays ago. And Jason Duncan, after this was shared, to somewhat to this context, uh, he just kept saying that he was hearing the Lord saying, just ask him. So me and Dr. Siemens were talking about the simplicity of asking. And if we were to ask the Father who, who gives good gifts, that he would give us the Holy Spirit um, with, without measure. And we can't even really fathom what that really means. So on Wednesday morning, right after I had this conversation on Tuesday afternoon with Dr. Siemens, I just, the Lord took me to Esther 5, and I was just, I was in Esther 5, and, and the king kept asking Esther, ask what you want from me, up to half of my kingdom. And I had no clue that that's exactly what Esther 5 was about. So I went into this prayer of just asking, and before I knew it, I was just asking the Lord for over an hour, just asking for all kinds of things, and I believe that those things were like-minded and like-hearted, and um, it came almost, it was almost flowing out of me, like asking for the more of Him in our lives, for our eyes to be open, for our ears to be attentive, and for just a willingness to go to places that we wouldn't really want to go, but because His Spirit was going, we were going to go. So I just want to encourage you to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to reveal himself. Ask the Lord to show you who you are. Ask the Lord to reveal his love for you more than anything. Um, and be open to receive. And uh, I was reminded of a dream. I'm reminded of it right now. A dream I had 
about a week ago when we were down in Florida. And I remember there, there was this young girl there that was in this dream and she was, she was running. She'd been running her whole entire life. And, um, and I remember just looking at her and knowing that she was almost in distress. And I said this one phrase to her and she just like melted in mine and Robin's arms. And I said this, the kingdom of heaven is not about achieving, it's about receiving. We can't achieve eternal life. We can't achieve these things on our own terms. But we have to be open to receive him, to receive his love, to receive his joy, his patience, his goodness, his kindness, his gentleness, self-control. That's the fruits of the Spirit, and that's the divine nature that he wants to literally instill in us and permeate not just within us, but that it overflows out of us to everybody that we come in contact to, with and to, no matter our circumstances. So I just wanted to leave that with y'all. With that being said, oh, there's Trenton. I want to invite Trenton up um, to speak. And I also want you all to be mindful. Um, I'm, I've been studying some passages that I have to preach from for a class. And I just was texting with Matthew, and Matthew and Jennifer have been in my heart a lot recently, and I, I really dearly miss, I miss them. I miss their presence here with us at Dwelling. And Matthew just said, will you, will you pray for me? because he's preaching his first sermon tomorrow and he's doing it at this um, Methodist church and he's preaching in their traditional um, congregation. We know Matthew's not afraid to push. <laughs> Matthew's not afraid to go with where the Spirit tells him, but just praying for wisdom for Matthew. So I would just, I would just ask that you would be mindful of that. You'd, you'd be praying over Matthew, um, that he would deliver the Lord's message and that the people would hear. Um, and he would not be held back, you know, from something that's traditional, that he would bring more of God's spirit into that, that place. So without further ado, Trenton, would you come up? You can open in prayer. And um, Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to um, lead us back into your family and to make a way for us to have reconciliation with you. And um, that he, thank you that you sent Jesus to come and undo the works of the devil to set us free from um, death and darkness and sin and disease. And I pray, Lord, that you would manifest your glory in our hearts and our minds and that you would um, help us to love you more, help us to understand your word a little bit more this evening. Um, help me to speak clearly. And uh, I just, yeah, I just ask for your grace upon our hearts and our lives that you would have your way. Oh Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as in heaven, as you have decreed. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to focus on verses 24 to 28. But I'll also give, a, also kind of 
give some of the context before. So I'll just, I'll just quickly summarize verses 13 to 20, and then I'll read from 21 to 28. Um, actually, yeah, so the, one of Matthew's concerns, or one of the questions that he's answering in writing this book, the story, this gospel of Jesus, is he's answering the question, who is Jesus? And he's also answering the question, what is Jesus about? What's his program? What's his mission, objective, if you will? And um, if you heard me some time ago, I shared from Matthew 1, verse 1, about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these great and amazing Old Testament promises, namely that he's the Messiah, the, the one promised to be sent by God to bring deliverance to the nation of Israel, to rescue them from their enemies, and to restore the kingdom of David. And he's also the one promised to um, bring justice and peace and righteousness to the earth. And, uh, and so the disciples of Jesus have that in their mind. And so Jesus, he's traveling with them and he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself, the Son of Man, as a, a messianic title borrowed from the prophet Daniel. And they say, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks more directly, okay, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus praises him for this, tells him that only God could have given him this knowledge and makes some uh, amazing promises about the church and stuff that I would love to go into, but I'm not going to. That's a different sermon. If you have questions about those verses and what they mean, you can ask me or Google it or whatever um, sometime. And then, uh, but then he tells them this kind of like a, a bit of a, probably for them it was a bit confusing, except they'd heard, probably heard him say it several times already, but he strictly charges them, okay, good that you know this, you can't tell anyone. This is a secret. And the reason I believe why it's a secret uh, is exposed in the next couple of verses here. So starting at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the reason Jesus didn't let them share what they knew about him being the Christ is because they didn't actually understand what that meant. They didn't understand the implications. They didn't understand everything about the Messiah. And it can be... Uh, easy for us to be hard on the disciples and on the Pharisees and all the, 
the Jews in the first century, it can be easy for us to be hard on them and say, you guys missed it. You didn't get the Old Testament. You didn't understand why Jesus was coming. But I, I could challenge all of us if... Okay, so let's take our Old Testaments and let's find all the places where it clearly says that Jesus would come in two appearances. The first appearance to die as a lamb and the second appearance coming as a lion. Do we know, do we know where to find that? Do we under, like, so we have to be gracious with, with them because we might not have done a lot better. Like some of us might think of Isaiah 53, where it says the suffering servant is going to uh, die. But we only know with confidence that speaking about Jesus now because he so clearly fulfilled that. They, they were, might have been thinking that was talking about Israel. In fact, a lot of people today think that it was talking about Israel. Or we could think of um, Isaac as the sacrificial lamb that Abraham was offering. Um, but even there, there were promises there, but you have to somehow reconcile that with uh, passages that speak of Jesus coming as a, or as the Messiah coming to destroy God's enemies, as the Messiah coming to rescue Israel. There's, there's a lot more passages about Jesus' second coming than there are about his first coming. So, that, what that tells us is, uh, in a sense, we um, are more liable if we misunderstand his second coming. We can be in grave danger if we misunderstand his second coming, especially if we're um, pointing fingers at his disciples for misunderstanding his first coming. And a lot, I would argue that a lot of people do misunderstand Jesus' second coming. But some of that is a bit of an aside. Um, so Peter rebukes Jesus right after getting it right. He's like, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Peter. You know, And on this rock I'm going to build my church. And Peter's like, oh yeah, I got that. Yeah. And then... You know, he's probably looking at the disciples. Jesus, no, it's not going to happen. And in Mark's account of this event, Jesus, it says Jesus turns and sees the disciples and rebukes Peter. So and Peter might have been looking at the disciples, but so was Jesus. And he was going to make sure things were clear about what's God's agenda and what's humanity's agenda. And uh, humanity's agenda, we, we don't know this, um, I have the privilege of, of knowing this because of some courses I took that talk about some extra stuff in the history and stuff. So what's interesting is that Jesus was not the first Messiah figure to appear on the scene at this time in history. There were other savior profile Jewish leaders who led revolts against the Romans, and some of them were actually victorious for a time, and were like great military heroes who are still celebrated today. And there were others who got squashed, but there was a series of military leaders 
who either self-proclaimed or their followers proclaimed were the Messiah. And history was telling a different story. So Jesus coming on the scene, in one sense, when everyone's asking, is this him, is this him? Part of why they're asking that is because, well, the rest weren't. So is this him? And, or is someone else going to be him? And so Peter and the disciples, their understanding of a Messiah figure is a military leader. And that's what so much of the Old Testament prophesies is, is a king. And the king in the Old Testament was a military leader. They were a judge. They were a number of different... They, they fulfilled a number of different roles that in our society today would be played by different players, but in, a lot of times that was, that was the king who did a bunch of these things. And so they're anticipating this king figure who's going to judge their enemies and is going to restore the borders of the land of Israel, etc. And he's going to do it with the sword. And, uh, and Jesus is saying... No, you have your, you're thinking of this the wrong way. You have your mind, you're actually an adversary to the purposes of God here. And you have to get in line. And, you have, and then he says, verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So, Jesus uh, lays out a pretty strict kind of ultimatum for His followers, for all of His followers, for you and me today, too. Um, if anyone would come after me, well, where was He going? He just told them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be crucified. How did Jesus know that? Well, he's, he knows every, all, everything. But uh, it was prophesied in Zechariah that Jerusalem would mourn for the one they pierced. And so he knew... Um, he, the, the point, I'm just trying to make the simple point that so much of what Jesus is telling his disciples is stuff that um, they could have been learning in like school, like in the religious schools as they're growing older and stuff, there's, there's um, so much of what Jesus understood about himself, I believe he learned it through the Bible. There's a uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually struggling up here. I'm just going to pray. Because that's all I got. Jesus, you know, you know what's afflicting me, Lord. And I just pray that you would come and 
Demonstrate your power, Lord, in the way that you desire. Like the very power of a person taking up their cross, Lord. That, that the world says it's weak. It's a weakness. You can't defend yourself. You can't, you can't fight back. You're, you're not strong enough. And, and Jesus, you demonstrated your strength in being silent as a lamb unto the slaughter. That was the power of God manifest in human flesh to freely lay down your life for a wicked race. For a depraved people who didn't even recognize you as their master. And I just ask that you would help us. Teach us what it means to carry our cross and give us the strength to do it, I pray. So a lot of times we spiritualize this. And we say, um, taking up your cross is like not arguing back or like, um, I don't know, we have all these examples of, oh, that's my cross, or I got sunburned, so that's my cross. And, and there's a level of truth in that. But there's also, uh, we also need to recognize that Jesus was being literal. That um, church tradition tells us that all of Jesus' 12 disciples died a violent death except John. That a number of them were crucified and others, they, they, almost all of them died as martyrs. And so when he's saying this, there's, he's not only speaking spiritually. There's a, a level of truth. There's a, a letter, level of this being literal that we need to acknowledge for ourselves that God may call us to be martyrs. And that's not a popular message for today. Unfortunately, in missiology and mission circles, a lot of times there's this idea that if a missionary dies on the field, it was the mission agency's fault, that it was a failure, that they didn't get them out on time, they didn't give them enough training, they didn't this and that. And um, I think that's too bad. Like there is, yeah, we should be careful and we should be good stewards of our lives, but there's also, there, I believe, biblically, a call upon us to be willing to physically lay down our lives, that we would physically die for the cause of Jesus, if He so wills it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a hallmark of Christianity that we believe in a life after our death. That this life we are living here is but temporary, and it's a mirror image of the life we're looking forward to. And what a glorious life it will be. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The implied answer is nothing. Nothing. There's no benefit. There's no gain. You can have have it all. You can have it all. And yet, if you lose your soul, there's no benefit. There's no gain. There's no profit. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The implied answer is nothing. You can't give anything. There's nothing you can possibly provide, give, argue, bargain. You can't go to God and be like, 
let me have the world and I'll do this for you and we'll make a deal. No, there's no deals. There's a, you can't even just lessen it. Like, well, let me have this one thing, this one treasure that I'd like on the side. No, we can't do that. There's nothing we can give in return for our lives. And then uh, Jesus gives this explanation for why he's saying the things he's saying. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So the, the strength to carry our cross is, is not only a... Uh, yeah, gotta be careful how I say this. Well, I'll just. We can find strength and encouragement to carry our cross knowing that we will be rewarded when Jesus comes back. And we can live our lives in fear and trembling knowing that if we decide to try and gain the world for ourselves, that we will be rewarded for that when Jesus comes back. Um, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. There's a lot of um, really amazing promises in the Old Testament about Jesus coming in glory and power. And the call to take up our cross is actually rooted in that. So, um, think of it a little bit like this. So, or I like to think of it like this. Um, you have places in the world where it's more common than here for believers to have their homes burned their children uh, killed in front of them, other things I don't even want to say. Um, and the um, encouragement of Scripture for them is that Jesus is going to um, deal with it. And uh, that doesn't always like sit well with us, but there's it's it's actually quite biblical. You just read through the Psalms, you'll, you'll find it. It's quite biblical to cry out to God in the face of injustice. That when there's evil happening to us, when people wrong us and hurt us, that. There, there's actually a biblical cry of say, God, bring justice. This is not right. Something here is not right. And there's a, it's a tension. There's totally a tension um, of we're called to forgive. We're called to take up our cross. In, in a sense, a dead person doesn't fight back. A dead person doesn't have rights, in a sense. Like, you, oh, you spit in my face. Well, God bless you. That didn't, no wrong done, because I'm dead anyways. Um, there's that. There's that truth, and, it's, and, the, and there's a parallel truth 
of like of recognizing that we are not permitted to take vengeance into our own hands because the only person who is just and able to do that properly is God alone. And therefore, in this life, we carry our cross with joy knowing that things will be made right. One is coming who will establish justice on the earth. He is coming in the glory of His Father with His angels, and He will repay each person according to what they have done. And on a, in another way, that could be motivation all the more to plead with the people around us, who, to plead with the very people who hurt us. There is a story of a, it's sort of unrelated and isn't really even to my point, but it's somewhat, it's somewhat on subject, so I just want to share it. There's a Corrie Ten Boom, so she uh, survived the uh, Nazi concentration camp, and her sister didn't, who was with her in there. And so Corrie's sister died at the hands of the Hitler's guards, oh, the Nazi soldiers, prison guards. And, uh, but Corey survived. And decades later, when Corey is traveling and preaching the gospel and doing ministry, a man comes up to her and says, Hey, I'm so and so. The person who, like, a person that Corey personally knew and personally suffered from the hands of a, pr- a prison guard, who, um, at one level, or I'm not, I don't know the story well enough to know how directly was involved with her sister's death, but anyways, was a, Nonetheless, a person of uh, deep, traumatic, personal grief. And he said, hey, I've become a Christian now, and I just felt led, like, could you, could you please forgive me? I just felt led to ask that you could forgive me. And Corey's response is, no, I can't. But, uh, but he, can, he can for me or in me or however she said it. He, he can help me too. And um, that's, I think that's a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to take up our cross. That the way of the world, the way that Peter had bought into, was to take up our sword and defend ourselves, defend our cause. God's on our side, we're on his side. Let's start slashing and, and he'll, he'll anoint us with the spirit that was on Samson. And we'll just defend everyone and we'll, we'll go at it. And Jesus is saying, no, get behind me. I'm, I'm a lamb led to the slaughter. Carry your cross with me. I'm gonna. I'm going to explain this verse, and then we're going to look at some, um, just because I like to, uh, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages um, about Jesus' return. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Um... 
there's there's kind of there's like there's several different options for what this means. Um, that are like there's several popular common explanations for this verse. There's probably many options for what this means, but the top the top explanations. Um, Jesus is referring to those who saw his transfiguration on the mountain six days later. The next passage. That that's his coming in the kingdom. And that some of them got to see that before they died. That's one option. Another option is that um, it refers to Jesus' death on the cross. And that that was his coming in the kingdom. Um, another option is that some of the disciples, are, one or more of them, are still alive. <clears throat> and that Jesus is coming in the kingdom. It hasn't happened yet, and they're still on the earth somewhere, hiding in caves in Turkey or something. Um, and, and I know there's at least one or two others, um, but I can't remember them right now, so please forgive me. Uh, I would like to argue that it's probably Jesus is actually referring to his own death. Um, well, there's uh, another interesting thing is that in, uh, I, sorry, I don't, it's in Luke or Mark. I'll just, man. Luke or Mark, I'll tell you soon, records that, tells the same story, but says that it was, just that they will not die until they see the coming of this kingdom. And that would sound like Pentecost. But, um, so, actually that would be another option. Not that it's his death, but it's his resurrection. Um, the reason why some scholars say that it's his death is because the Romans set up his death as a mock coronation ceremony for a king. They, they put it the, on the cross, there's a little seat you sit on, so it holds part of your weight, a lot of your weight's on your ankles and on your wrists or hands, I don't actually know, sorry, and, um, and then a little bit on your seat. And it wasn't enough that to hold you completely, but it could at least help you to stay there longer. So it wasn't actually a mercy, it was like part of the torture process, I guess to keep you alive longer. Usually the way you died was actually you'd suffocate. You'd hang and then you wouldn't be able to hold yourself up enough to breathe. It was horrible. Um, and so he wore a crown. He had a kingly robe given to him. And he was on a throne. And he had, uh, properly, he had officials on each side of him. Thieves. And so in a sense, that was Jesus coming into his kingdom. That's how they set it up, and that's how, there's hints of that. That's how some of the gospel writers saw it. As, and that when, so then when Jesus' disciples, James and John, when they got their mom to ask him, hey, can my son sit on either side of you when you come into your kingdom? They're thinking, glory in heaven. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm not sure you want that. I can drink that cup. Are you going to drink the cup I'm drinking? And they're like, yeah, we can. And his response is, yeah, I guess... You will, but that's not for me to appoint. It's already been decided. So there's, I think that is a compelling option here um, that some of those, meaning everyone but Judas, 
is how I understand it. Everyone but Judas uh, will get to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And it's a kingdom of the cross. And that's the kingdom that we currently inhabit. Is a kingdom of the cross. We are ambassadors of a crossly kingdom serving a crucified Lord who is coming back in glory. So, there are, and I'm switching gears here, there are about 150 chapters in the Bible where their primary concern is the return of Jesus and the days and events surrounding it. Um, there's uh, about 80 chapters, I think, or so in the Gospels. All four of them. So, um, then you take passages in the Old Testament, a number of those 150 also mention elements of his first coming. So there's a bit of overlap. But I think it is safe to say that the Bible speaks more about Jesus' second coming than it does about his first coming. Um, But because of the simplicity of the gospel narratives and just our own kind of understanding of it, it's far easier for us to have a more clear picture of Jesus' first coming. But I would like to help us have a little more grasp of some of the Bible passages about his second coming. Um, in Genesis 3.15, we have this verse where God promises the, the serpent that a descendant of Eve would come who would crush his head. And there's, uh, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get into it, but there, you could consider that as fulfilled on the cross, or you might consider that as fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And maybe it's both. Um, in in Genesis 49. We have a promise given by Jacob to his sons, and he speaks of his son Judah, from whom Jesus is descended. So I'm at 49, verse 8. Next, I'll just start at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I'll just stop there. Um, basically, it's a promise of kingship in, to the tribe of Judah that was fulfilled in David, but what it says it won't depart. And so that suggests that we are now in an interim period in history where the tribe of Judah is not currently exercising their ruler's staff. So we are looking forward to the future when the line of the tribe of Judah as promised in the book of Revelation comes back 
and he will have a ruler's staff, whether a physical rod in his hand, or at least he'll exercise the authority of a ruler. In uh, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And it goes on and on. So Jesus read from this passage in Luke 4, and said, this is fulfilled, here I am. Now, what's, um, what we need to understand is when the New Testament points back to the Old Testament and says, this is now fulfilled, it's the, there's a, I don't know what else to call it besides like a prophetic now. We're in the middle. We're still in. It's still now. That's my point. Jesus is still doing this. How do we know? How do we know Jesus is still doing this? How, well, how, like, on what authority can I claim that Jesus, what he said in Luke four, was only a partial fulfillment of this? How dare I? It's because, because I'm still broken. He's still mending me. This isn't done yet. This isn't done yet. This is gonna. This is gonna happen. Okay. The spirit, and you know, he's actually doing it through us. He uses us. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. So the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Jesus, his spirit that he's given to us, anoints us to bring good news to the poor. He sends us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives because they're still captives. And uh, so this isn't fully fulfilled yet. He's still doing it. And he's, he's, it's going to be completed one day. He's going to come back and he's going to restore all things and this will be finished that, that the trauma and suffering and tragedy that we do to one another will end and it will be only a memory. Um, if you turn the page or pages, depends on your Bible font, <laughs> to chapter 63. Um, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year, my year of redemption had come. Um, this is what Peter probably had in mind um, when he's saying, Far be it from you. Um, but Peter didn't understand the timeline and the timing and, and all that, that we have the privilege of understanding. Um, it's, uh, it, I, here's my like encouragement to you. If, if, if reading this passage is, it's difficult to picture this being Jesus, which it can be, and I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. Um, my encouragement advice to you is to just pray over it. Like, Lord, what on earth is this? How can you talk like this? The day of your vengeance? Um, it's easier to agree with this when you... Uh, are the survivor of a genocide when like all your people are gone you know like two or three none of them you're related to you met them in a foreign city and they're all dead because of a religious war then it's easier to acknowledge the necessity of a god who has wrath the uh, the preachers who say no, no, this is only allegorical, figurative. Jesus is, is um, however it works out, his coming will be only peaceful. Well, they sell that to someone who, who's been completely violated and traumatized and all that. Sorry, you guys are like getting the raw Trenton today. Um, in Psalm 110, verse 1, it's, it says uh, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is still currently sitting at the right hand of his Father. Um, and there will come a day when uh, his enemies will be fully made a footstool to his feet, and he will reign as, as a king upon the earth um, in Jerusalem. Sorry, I'm explaining more than what I just quoted, but it's, it's there in Psalm 110. Um, in uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 14, um, It speaks of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem again, another in our future, and talks about Jesus coming and rescuing the people. But it talks about like horrible tragedy coming to the Jewish people in our future. Um, so that, yeah. So Zechariah 14, Jesus coming to rescue the people of Jerusalem who are being destroyed by some enemy, 
must be paired with Isaiah 63, this warrior, battle warrior coming up to rescue his people. They're, those are, this, I believe, they're speaking of the same historical event that's still in our future. So we might not understand a Jesus like that, but he's coming back for his people, and they're going to be in trouble. The Bible prophesies it. It's really clear. Let's go to, I'll just, this is really clear. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 10. I'm trying to be really precise, so I'm not reading too much. I'll just read. Okay. Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Zechariah 10, verse 6. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. So we remember that Israel was exiled by the Babylonians. Jerusalem, Judah was exiled by the Babylonians. They were taken away, and then Cyrus sent them back. So how do we know that this isn't speaking about that event? I will strengthen. I will bring them back because this was written after. It's speaking about something else. That's history. At this point, when Zechariah is prophesying about God bringing Israel back to their own land, they had already experienced exile. He's speaking about something that's still in our future. God is going to bring the people of Israel back. And so that's why there's an Isaiah 63 that's why there's a Psalm 110. That's why there's a Zechariah 14. That's why there's a Genesis 3.15 of crushing the serpent's head. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is because Jesus said this little statement to John the Baptist's disciples when they came to ask him, hey, are you the one? Or are we supposed to look for another? And he said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. We live in a time and a time and place in history in, in uh, Western civilization with a particular, you know, Western church culture that we live in that would chase me out of their doors for the things I'm saying. That Jesus as a warrior? No, he's a lamb. He's a shepherd. Jesus is not a warrior. That's what they'll say. And Jesus says. I'm coming in the glory of my Father with all, all of my angels. And, he's, and that statement is pointing to a couple different prophecies. Uh, I don't need to just rattle them off, but he's speaking of specific prophecies that talk about him coming in the glory of his Father with all his angels. And in Matthew 13, what Jesus um, says in these parables that we're so familiar with, the parable of the weeds, so uh, an enemy sows weeds, and, and uh, the workers ask, what should we do with them? He says, wait till it's all grown, and, Jesus, and then we'll, we'll separate them. How does Jesus... That's an allegory for a historical event. What's the historical event that Jesus says? I'm sending the angels. They're going to gather the weeds and throw them into a furnace. And then he says the same thing in, in the same passage, a few parables later, the parable of the net, as fishermen are separating good fish from bad fish. The angels, 
who are coming with Jesus are going to separate people, the good from the bad. And so Jesus says, Blessed is he who is not offended by me. Because if we uh, celebrate the uh, disbanding of Israel and them getting brought into exile by their Arab neighbors into Egypt and Turkey and Syria and Iran, or I don't know what all that. And, um, and if we say, if we join with the world and say that's good and right, finally justice for the Palestinians. And I'm getting really political here. And I, Jesus is coming for the Palestinians too. I'm just going to say that. Um, but, um, but if we, if we go along with the world and, and celebrate that, well, then we're on the wrong side of then we're on the wrong side of Isaiah 63 because he's coming back for them because he loves them they're his own I mean we're his own we're adopted in we are grafted in but <laughs> where are the wild branches I better just stop. God, have your way. Oh, Lord, redeem what I've said. Lord, bring... I just pray, Lord, that whatever truth and goodness I may have shared this morning that's from your heart, I just ask, Lord, that you just plant it deep in our hearts. Lord, and I just pray that all the offensive stuff I said that we have maybe haven't heard before so like directly... And we're like, I don't know what I think about that. I think Trent went a little overboard, but I pray, Lord, that we would really wrestle with the text. We would wrestle with your word and allow you to plant it in our hearts. I, I'm just a person. Like People don't have to listen to me or just go with me because I sound smart sometimes. Lord, I pray that we would believe the word of God for ourselves and that we would know what it means, that we would meditate on it and hunger for it and that it would be the bread for our souls. Lord, show us who You are. The One who preaches good news to the poor and binds up the brokenhearted, proclaims liberty to the captives. Is You're coming back to liberate the captives. And... Uh, And not everybody's going to be a fan of that. But you have called us to take up our cross. I pray you strengthen us, Lord. Empower us to carry our cross, I pray. With, with joy. you're coming back. Amen. Thank you, Trenton. I was 
talking with somebody in the gym the other day, and, and he made this statement, it's so true, and he says, you know, becoming a Christian and walking more with Christ, I think I'm more so unlearning things than I, as I'm actually learning. And I think that's so true because we have such a worldview from where we come from, from the experiences, and it doesn't matter where you've come from, you have a worldview that doesn't align with Christ, and he has to take that and take that distorted vision and reorder it, you know, that it's, and reorganize it, including our habits. He has to reorder, re- reorient every part of us so that we can see the way he sees, so that we can speak the way he speaks and do things that, that he calls us to do. And I do appreciate that, what Trenton talked about in regards to the Lord being a lamb, but also the Lord being a man of war. And um, I would say that I've experienced both. But to recognize the chief source is love. It's love that drives out fear. It's love that drives out demonic activity. It's love that moves. There's so much that Trent shared with us that we could chew on. But I would even say to you, ask the Lord to offend you. Where are you not living in line with his heart, with his mind, with your life, with your choices? And then let him reorient those to us to be aligned with his heart. So I say to you, be blessed, go in peace in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let his heart dwell in your heart. In Jesus' name. Amen.